You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Spectre and Meltdown mitigations proceed with many successes, but some blue screen of death failures, too. Siphon looks like the souped-up VPN of choice for Iranian dissidents as that country's internet crackdown continues. Pop-up ads infest mobile devices as an old tactic finds new scope for its misapplication. Olympic fishing targets South Korean companies. China moves to stop illicit cryptocurrency miners. And is there an altcoin bubble? Sure looks like it. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, January 9th, 2018. The very large task of mitigating the speculative execution processor vulnerabilities, Spectre and Meltdown, continues with a number of successes. Apple has addressed Spectre with a fix for iOS and macOS devices. On the whole, the cooperation vendors are showing in addressing the vulnerabilities seems commendable, at least Intel thinks so, and with some reason. But problems applying the fixes offered are widely reported, as one would expect. Microsoft has pulled its fix of Spectre and Meltdown for AMD-based devices. That patch is reported to have bricked some of the machines to which it was applied. There's a general lesson here about patching. Fixing problems that have ramifications across many platforms and many applications involves complex dependencies and often unintended consequences. This is particularly true for patches that touch systems where downtime or interruption are too costly to tolerate, as in industrial process controls and similar IoT environments. So the speed with which mitigations have been pushed out is encouraging. Where Twitter was the enabling technology of Iran's failed green revolution of 2009, current dissenters are turning to Canadian-made Siphon, a firewall evasion app that's seen up to 700,000 downloads a day in the new year, most of them in Iran. Siphon, developed by the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab, isn't the only tool being used to circumvent Iran's filter net, but observers are tending to keep quiet about other tools, lest they blow the gaff to the regime. That regime appears to be showing some internal ambivalence toward its own response to dissent. A surge in pop-up redirect ads is troubling mobile device users. The tactic isn't new, but it's recently become very widespread, and has begun infesting top-tier websites. Media outlets that depend upon ad servers for revenue are feeling a pinch and are looking for ways to pressure those services into better behavior. Concerns continue over phishing attempts during the run-up to the Winter Olympics. It appears to be a targeted campaign directed at selected South Korean companies. There's no attribution yet, but eyes are inevitably turning toward the usual suspects in Pyongyang. Researchers at security firm Ensilo recently published work outlining an exploit they've named Process Doppelganging. Udi Yavo is chief technology officer at Ensilo. Microsoft added the capability to NTFS 
to support transactions. What this essentially means is that once you do uh, file actions, you'll be able to easily roll them back. Um, this is very useful, for example, for uh, installers. When installers start putting files on disk, uh, maybe at one point or another, it may have an error. Um, it makes it very easy to roll it back, to roll back all the changes that were done to the file system. What we figured is what's going to happen if we create an executable, map it as executable into memory, which means uh, it's ready to, to execute, and then we roll back the transaction. So essentially it means that what we see in, in memory, what's running is not related to the data on disk. So if something tries to read from the disk, it will no longer read data that actually exists in memory. So you've got something on disk and that's what you load in for your executable. And then at, at just the right moment, um, you execute this, uh, this function in the NTFS file system that reverts the disk back to its previous state. So uh, from the disk's point of view, it appears as though the file never changed and what's executing doesn't no longer matches what's on the disk. Is that correct? Exactly. And still, even though it's no longer there, everything that tries to look at the process will see the properties of the file that resides on disk. So, for example, if you try to check its signatures, it will, it will look okay. Is this process uh, something that's at the research stage for you all? Was this a, an original bit of research that you all did, or is this something that you've discovered that uh, other people are using? No, uh, it's a research that was done uh, entirely uh, by us. So there's no evidence that anyone is using this out in the wild yet for any, any bad things? No, and this is also why we did not release any source code, because... Uh, we don't want to make it uh, easy to leverage at this moment. And so in terms of evading uh, standard AV f uh, software, uh, how does it go about doing that? And, and then how can you detect this sort of thing? It depends on uh, when exactly the AV is doing its uh, scanning. Most AVs do the scanning either when the file is closed or when the process is created. In both cases, it's going to be problematic because the file is uh, no longer the original file. Some AV vendors do it from user mode process, uh, and then it's not going to be in the context of the transaction. So this is why it's able to evade. So is this a, a flaw in the NTFS file system uh, fundamentally, or is it just someone uh, being clever and take advantage of something that's functioning the way it was intended? It's actually the second option. There is uh, no type of vulnerability here and no uh, kind of bug. It's just a way to leverage uh, features in an unpredictable way. That's Udi Yavo from Ensilo. You can learn more about process doppelganging on the Ensilo website. It's in their blog section. Criminals are showing sustained interest in cryptocurrency mining and hardware wallet pilferage as the altcoins' very high valuations persist. Chinese authorities appear to be preparing a crackdown on the illicit installation of currency miners in unsuspecting third parties. Miners are spreading to new mobile precincts, as they're reported to have appeared in BlackBerry sites. And the government of North Korea shows little sign of forsaking theft of cryptocurrency as a means of redressing the financial shortfalls imposed by international sanctions and an economy that produces little that anyone wants to buy. Initial coin offerings continue, and both actual businesses and regulators are giving them some attention. 
The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is devoting some of its beefed-up cyber oversight muscle to the initial coin-offering market, and there are a number of startups going the ICO route as they seek funding for growth. One of those is Telegram, the encrypted messaging startup whose service is among those currently blocked in Iran. Telegram is planning, according to TechCrunch, a multi-billion dollar ICO to put its own blockchain platform in place, complete with its own native cryptocurrency, said to represent an evolutionary advance over pioneers like Bitcoin and Ethereum. The new platform will be called TUN, the Telegram Open Network, and will enable payments in the Telegram chat app and elsewhere. Founder Pavel Durov is said to be interested in the sort of independence of government control he wasn't able to attain with his earlier company, Russian social media platform VK. So, is there a bubble in altcoins? A lot of people resist saying so, some of them apparently out of the kind of pardonable but starry-eyed techno-libertarianism that seems to animate telegram enthusiasts. But this market looks a speculative mania for the ages, one to rival tulip bulb futures, or maybe, to take a more recent bubble, subprime loan derivatives. Witness Dogecoin, named after a dog but not pronounced like dog because it came from an old meme that originated in the Homestar Runner puppet show, where Homestar Runner calls Strongbad his doge. You quack me up! Quack. Me. Up. That's why you're my D-O-G-E. You're Doge? What are you talking about? I'm strong bad! Various others picked this up on Tumblr and elsewhere with posts that featured pictures of a Shiba Inu dog, then encounters with this particular white fluffy Doge, and then the white fluffy Doge making, as Ars Technica puts it, excited but ungrammatical declarations. We explain this because, first of all, we are a bring-your-own-dog shop here at the Cyberwire, so we're naturally attracted to news with a canine angle. But second of all, because this backstory should suggest that Dogecoin probably wasn't meant to be taken entirely seriously. Indeed, that seems to be the case. The cryptocurrency hasn't been under active development for about a year, and it was intended to be something people could goof around with until it faded naturally into oblivion. Only natural oblivion isn't in prospect. In fact, Dogecoin peaked at $2 billion this Saturday, that's b-b-billion, billion with a B, before a market correction yesterday brought it back to its current level of about $1.7 billion. Dogecoin co-founder Jackson Palmer, who really hasn't been actively involved with Dogecoin since 2015, told the altcoin news outlet Coindesk, quote, It says a lot about the state of the cryptocurrency space in general, that a currency with a dog on it which hasn't released a software update in over two years has a $1 billion-plus market cap, end quote. You said it, Mr. Palmer, but all things blockchain are singing to speculators nowadays. The governments of Russia and Venezuela are introducing blockchain-based fiat currencies, which seems in some ways to be missing the point, but okay. The crucial question remains, will those fiat cryptocurrencies be convertible to Dogecoin? Or maybe even Vopercoin, if you're a coin trader with the munchies? Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001 
SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Uh, Jonathan, welcome back. Um, there's been a lot of news lately about uh, Bitcoin mining in particular and the amount of power that it uses. And I was hoping you could just spread some light on why is that? Why is the energy use so uh, significant for Bitcoin mining? And is it going to eventually collapse under its own weight? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And there were some reports going around uh, a couple of weeks ago about the amount of electricity being used for Bitcoin mining and how it compares to the electricity usage of even certain countries. And uh, fundamentally, the reason is that the Bitcoin network is secured by the uh, computational processing being done by all the nodes in the system. And as more and more nodes are joining, as more and more people are becoming interested in Bitcoin, as an, and as more and more people want to mine Bitcoin, uh, you see more people investing more and more effort into solving these computational puzzles that uh, reward the miners with Bitcoin when they can find a solution. And uh, people are worried about this. People are concerned about the amount of electricity that Bitcoin is using and also concerned about the uh, huge waste uh, of this electricity because essentially it's not doing anything useful for anybody other than uh, allowing the people who solve the puzzle to get some reward uh, in Bitcoin. So there's definitely a concern about that. People have been thinking about ways to design systems that don't use as much as much energy. Uh, those have so far remained academic proposals. They haven't really become uh, as popular as Bitcoin. Um, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And it's a concern for how much the Bitcoin network can continue to grow in the future. And is there any risk of these blockchain systems sort of collapsing under their own weight? Um, I wouldn't quite say collapsing under their own weight. I, I think there's always the concern that that these things are a bit of a bubble. And uh, as it becomes, I mean, we've seen this even with Bitcoin itself, that as it becomes harder and harder to solve these puzzles that underlie Bitcoin, uh, the average user, the kind of the hobbyist who might be interested in, in uh, being a Bitcoin miner for fun, 
is being uh, that were priced out of the marketplace. And what you have instead are people who run small businesses, essentially, where they have these huge mining farms, uh, investing quite a lot of money, uh, still to be able to turn a profit. But nevertheless, you're kind of getting rid of the small people and, and only leaving room for larger people who can do the mining. And there's always the risk that that will eventually uh, collapse as the average person can't get in anymore at, the, at ground level and, and loses interest. So um, there is a potential concern there. And using a lot of electricity as they go. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I, I think that, you know, I think about it in terms of just the, the um, environmental impact. Um, it's still small relative to all the other things we're doing to the planet, but it's something to think about. And, and the amount of electricity and uh, consumption that's being wasted, essentially, just to keep the Bitcoin network going. Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.